The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Our Bible study is going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. But, but for those of you that will um, also, are going to also want to look up Matthew 16. Um, Mark's Gospel, he was a little... He was a little uh, uh, limited on the uh, the information here, so we're going to bounce back and forth. Now, actually, we'll do Mark eight, and then we'll jump over to Matthew sixteen eventually, beginning in verse sixteen. But let's go ahead and pray. So, Heavenly Father, we remember, we recall that the Book of Acts tells us that it was on the day of Pentecost, as your disciples, as they were waiting for the promise of the Father, the giving of the Holy Spirit. That they were praying together, 120 men and women, men and women, lifting up their voices to heaven, praying to you, waiting, waiting, waiting. And on that day, it says that as a mighty rushing wind, as a mighty rushing wind, the Spirit came and rested upon each one of those who were there. And so, Father, it's our heart's desire that tonight and this weekend we would be visited by your Spirit in such a way, not giving birth to the church as the original Pentecost Sunday uh, uh, took place, but, Lord, a reviving, an awakening, a stirring of the church uh, to nurture our love for Christ Jesus. And I, I pray for those tonight, Lord, who are watching online and those who have gathered here, Lord, that as we have worshiped you in song, that we are now going to worship you by looking to your word. And it's our heart's desire that our, our hearts would be as fertile soil, uh, receiving, receiving the word, the seed of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. So I was feisty. I was a feisty uh, adolescent, a feisty teenager. Um, I was a big kid, like in sixth grade, 150 pounds. I know. I never met a tortilla I didn't like. And um, my mom made sure that we had plenty of them. You got you to gotta hear me on this. Sixth grade, mustache, right? All the guys in my neighborhood had mustaches, but that's a whole other story. So I'd be, I'd be coming home, and I'd be feisty, and I'd see my dad sitting there. And he didn't like it when I, when I said this, but I was the kind of kid that would say what people didn't like to hear. And I'd say, hey, dad, what's going on? And then he would greet me with complete silence, and he would stare at me. He would have a look like, oh, it's time for you to go into the military and go away. And I was still a kid, right? And then I would come back with something, because I was far enough away from him to run. Um, Then I would come back at him, and I'd say, Dad, can you tell me something? And he'd look my direction again, not speaking. And I'd say, what's it like to have the world's greatest son? He'd stare at me a little more, and he'd think. And he'd say, you know, Daniel, I don't know what it's like to have the world's greatest son. You probably should talk to your grandfather to find that out. It was a number of years ago when I was a youth pastor in Fallbrook, California. I know you hear about that on a regular basis. Long before cell phones, it wasn't uncommon. It didn't happen all the time, but it wasn't uncommon to receive a phone call about midnight, one, two in the morning from a student. Landline, Wanda side of the bed, the phone would ring. She would mumble something like, you know what, it's, you know, it's for you. And then roll over and try and go back to sleep. And I'd, I'd grab the phone and I'd disappear into the uh, living room 
And, you know, I would recognize, almost immediately, I would recognize a student's voice. And I'd say, hey, Josh, because half the kids in my youth group were named Josh. Hey, Josh, how's this going? Or what's going on? And there would be some kind of crisis, you know, some kind of family disturbance, some kind of um, giving in to, to sin, and they just needed to talk. As a matter of fact, sometimes they'd show up in my driveway, and we'd go out, and we'd talk it through, and we'd pray. But on this particular phone call, I did not recognize the voice. And instead of asking for Danny, I was addressed as Daniel. Sort of like my dad addressed me, but a little different. And he said, are you Daniel Ramos? And I said, I am. And I knew immediately when they called me Daniel, it wasn't one of my youth group kids. He said, are you Daniel A. Ramos? My, my middle initial stands for Apodaca. That's my mom's maiden name. I said, I am. This is getting weird, right? Because I don't recognize the individual. He said, were you born in Escondido? This is the middle of the night. I said, I was born in Escondido. And then he said, have you ever lived in Escondido? I go, no, I lived in Vista, and now I live in Fallbrook. And I said, excuse me, but can I ask you how I can help you? And he said, I'm looking for my dad. I'm looking for my dad. I've never met him, and, and my mom doesn't know I'm doing this, but I sometimes grab the phone book and I work my way down the list and I'm looking for my dad. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not your dad. He said, his, his tone of his voice kind of changed and he said, it's okay, it doesn't matter anyways. And then he hung up the phone and I went back to bed but I didn't go back to sleep. Because you see my friends, in some capacity, in some way, we're looking for our dad. We're looking for our dad in a relationship. We're looking for our dad in an achievement. We're looking for our dad in an accomplishment. We're looking for our dad in a beverage, in a drug. We're looking for our dad. We might not sit in a closet with a flashlight and a phone book, calling down the list, hoping that maybe, and you know, you stop and think about it, not only are you hoping, but in some ways there's a lot of anxiety and fear as to who's going to pick up the other end of the phone. Tonight's Bible study is called Jesus Messiah. And this, obviously, as you know, uh, we're working our, as we work our way through Mark's gospel, and you all are familiar enough with the gospel to know that we're dealing tonight with Peter's confession as to who Jesus is. I want to begin with a quick, a quick look at, at the word or the idea. It's really a title, Messiah. I want to read to you from a, an article, an excerpt from an article from God Questions. It's a, it's a very helpful website. But let me, read, let me read this portion of their article. Messiah comes from the Hebrew, wor Hebrew word Mashiach. It has two meanings. One means the anointed one. When you hear the word anointed, it literally means to smear, to smear with, with oil or some liquid. It can also mean chosen one, anointed one, chosen one. In whatever you do to look for your dad, in whatever you do to look for affirmation, the secret is found in the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one. The Greek equivalent is the word Christos 
In the English, it is Christ. You're familiar with that word, too. Actually, the name Jesus Christ is the same as Jesus the Messiah. A couple more thoughts from God questions. In biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was consecrating, think setting them apart for a particular role or purpose. Thus, an anointed one was someone with a special God-ordained purpose. When we look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, we see that the men of Judah come and lay their hands and anoint King David as their king. We, we saw this earlier in his life when Samuel comes to his community and finds David. And, and, and I picture, maybe it's not right, I don't know, maybe the Chosen will have to do an Old Testament uh, episode on it. I, I see the prophet taking a quantity of oil and literally pouring it upon, uh, upon young David and the oil coming down upon him onto his shoulders. Maybe it's a, not quite that way, but it sure works well in my imagination. So a king would be anointed. A king would be consecrated, set apart for God's purpose for Israel. Listen, one more thing. A king or a leader would be a shepherd. Because in, in Israel's mindset, the king was there to care and to protect and to provide for the people. The high priest was also anointed. Aaron was anointed in Exodus chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter 8. So again, the high priest is set apart by God to serve his people, to represent his people before God. So then as we can imagine the oil poured out upon an individual was symbolic of God's spirit coming upon them. And when we look at Jesus' life, it says that the spirit, that, that, that he comes to the river Jordan, not unlike thousands of other people, and yet as he steps into the water, he, the unique thing about him is as he goes into the water and he comes out, it says that the heavens are rent or torn open, and the spirit comes and descends and rests upon him. That which the oil was symbolic literally happened to Jesus on the day that he was baptized, obviously hearing the words from heaven from the Father, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. My friends, this is Messiah. And in Matthew 16, verse 16, we hear Peter's confession. I'll read it to you. Where Jesus asked a question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, Peter speaks up, right? The other guys are quiet. The other guys are like Danny Ramos in high school. You sit at the back of the room and you don't make contact and whatever you do, you don't speak up. But Jesus, uh, Peter says, you are the Christ, remember? You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. And then he ascribes deity to Jesus, the Son of the living God. On the screen, you'll see a verse from Isaiah 42.1, the Old Testament referring to Messiah, describing him, his job description, if you will, where he says, Behold my servant, my servant, God speaking of the Messiah. Behold my servant, speaking of Jesus, my servant, whom I uphold or lift up. My chosen Messiah, in whom my soul delights. Listen to the terminology that God uses through the prophet. I have put my spirit upon him. 
My spirit comes and rests upon him, and he will bring forth justice, listen, to the nations. We, we start with Israel, but God's desire is that justice would come to all people, that evil would be displaced by the rule of Messiah. I said that you and I are looking for our Father. We are looking for Messiah. We do a lot of really good things, but they don't satisfy. We love a lot of really good people, but the satisfaction doesn't last. We are looking for Jesus, Messiah. also want to read from Isaiah 61. We're in verse 1, and you'll recognize Jesus having read this when he was in Nazareth in, the, in a synagogue. He says of himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember the oil coming down, but this is the spirit. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then I believe he speaks of the year of Jubilee in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember Jubilee. All debts were forgiven. All slaves were released. The favorable year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn, to bring comfort to those who have suffered loss, loss of a relationship, loss of reputation, loss of fine, loss, those who have suffered the loss of a loved one, God draws near to bring comfort, Messiah. We've said this before, and I'll say it again. The Jews, when Jesus came, expected the Messiah to drive out the Romans. That's all that they wanted. That was their greatest need, at least if you would have asked them. Get these guys out of here. They're charging us taxes. They're roughing us up. They tell us when we can, we can move and when we can't move. We want them God. They wanted him to establish a kingdom, not unlike King David. You, you need to remember that when King David and Solomon were kings, that Israel spread, that, that his boundaries spread so far, and that they had, there was an element of glory that was brought to them. And that is what the people wanted. They wanted that glory again. They told their kids as they were being raised, one day Messiah's coming. One day Messiah's coming. Nobody's going to kick us around, and nobody's going to charge us taxes, and we'll worship our God without the flags of the Romans with their pagan deities in, in, near the temple courts. It would be after the resurrection that people began to understand that this Messiah's deliverance was from the tyranny of sin. And death, not Rome. It would be a spiritual deliverance. The battle wasn't military in nature. The battle took place on a cross. In second, uh, Corinthians chapter, uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, chapter 2. I was, I was thinking about this this weekend because I knew I was going to use this verse and Pastor Daniel used it on the weekend. That's okay, he can if he wants. Hear Paul's words here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's reference to Gentiles, just in case you wanted to know. God made alive together with him, with Christ. We have been made spiritually alive because Jesus, Jesus has conquered death, sin, and the grave. 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's Jesus. So then the fullness of Jesus is coming, looking for us, looking forward. It came, it's here within our hearts, but we look forward to the day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to Jesus coming, Messiah coming, our Christ, our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior coming and ruling and reigning on this planet and ruling with a rod of iron. That means immediate justice. And some of you have dealt with the court or the legal system will find that comforting. But he's coming again because Messiah, unbeknownst to the people in first century Israel, would come two times. The first time as a suffering servant, the second time as a triumphant king. I want to read you a Christmas card verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hope I don't mess up your Christmas this year, but this is a reference to the second coming. Verse 6 says, For unto us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government or his rule or his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. And there's reference to King David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. And lastly, the prophet says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's desire to do. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears, no longer looking at, at Messiah. I want to talk a little bit about, before we get into our passage, a little bit about Mark's gospel here. This is the midway point. This is the middle and there's going to be a shift, you'll notice, as we make our way this summer, as we make our way through the balance of the Gospel of Mark. There's going to be a shift where Jesus goes from, from, from training his disciples for ministry, preparing them for ministry, to now preparing them for the cross. I, I want you to see his tenderness. Remember, I said that, that Messiah or king, a king, would be a shepherd. So he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he will go to the cross and that he will die. It's also important to know that Peter, when Peter confessed Jesus as being the Messiah, he was identifying with him. I believe that identifying with Jesus is the essence of being a Christian. I believe it's more important than you and I can imagine. I think it's easy to say, I'm a Christian. It's easy to say, and there's nothing wrong with obviously saying, I believe in Christ, I trust in him. I trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. My kids would tell, I've invited Jesus into my heart. He's inside of me. I'm not quite sure that we always explain that all the way so well, but that's, that's what they can grasp. That's what they can understand. But when we identify with him, we're saying that he now rules and governs my life and tells me how to live. He gives me his wisdom and his insight. But just as important as we consider the day of Pentecost coming up this weekend, he's been so gracious to give us his spirit to empower us to follow him. 
Jesus initiates this conversation tonight with a question when he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And one of the things that strikes me about the question is is where he asks the question. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Judea. He's not in the Galilee. He's near a, a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is where he poses this question. It is the vicinity of this, of this city, this, the city that had been established, where, where years earlier Israel had sinned by worshiping Baal here. Like after Solomon's death, there was the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north and the two, two tribes to the south. And the northern kingdom, because they didn't want their people to travel to Jerusalem and worship in the temple, established two different places at Bel, uh, Bethel and Dan to worship. And, and instead of worshiping God, they worshiped Baal. Which is one of the reasons that when the Assyrians came in 722 B.C. and swept them away was because it was was God's judgment for worship, for idol worship. And this is where Jesus reveals his identity to his disciples. Then when the Greeks occupied the region, region, they built a temple very close to Caesarea Philippi. As a matter of fact, if you go there today, you see its ruins. And it's interesting that there is an opening in the side of this cliff and at one time, water came out, and next to it, uh, there's a, a, there was a, a temple to the Greek god Pan. And this is where people in the area would come and worship. And this is where Jesus reveals the fact that he is Messiah to his disciples. And in Jesus' day, there was a temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar that was very nearby. Stop and think about it. He brings his disciples to a place that's surrounded by paganism. Surrounded by idols and, 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 and many times immoral worship. But listen, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? This is where he stirs their heart to consider, to wrestle with his identity. And then as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Jesus then transitions to telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be betrayed by a friend. I'm going to be given over to my enemies. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. Remember, the Roman form of execution. And I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And they didn't understand. In the same way that sometimes you and I do not understand. In the same way as we'll see here in just but a couple of minutes, that their knowledge of Jesus grew over time. They didn't always understand his teaching or his parables. They asked for clarity and instruction. And he was happy to do that when he met with them. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Up until the end, in their minds, they perceived that the kingdom would be established, that they would have a ground floor entrance into the kingdom, positions of authority and honor. They didn't understand. So then Jesus now initiates a conversation as to who he is. So we see on the screen that Peter confesses uh, Jesus, Peter's confession. So let me read to you just two verses. It says, and, when, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages uh, of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Some people are saying, you're John the Baptist. 
John's dead at this time. And others say Elijah, prominent prophet from the Old Testament. Powerful, powerful man of God from the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah never died. Remember, Elijah was carried up into heaven. And others say one of the prophets. It's important for us to know that Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. We were in Bethsaida last time. In the same way that we know of the Sea of Galilee, right? I see an avocado shape. Well, I'm from Fallbrook, so I'm gonna, everything's an avocado. Everything's either guacamole and chips or, or, or an avocado sometimes. As a matter of fact, one of my former students, he's a missionary in uh, Cork, Ireland. His name's Mike Neglia. I'm going to see him in a couple of, maybe next month at a conference. I remember one time I was watching him preach, and he raised up his arms, and sure enough, he had an avocado tattooed on the backside of his bicep. So, yeah, he's easily distracted. So the Sea of Galilee, and then we're, we're used to the Jordan River coming out the bottom coming out the bottom towards the Dead Sea. But, but it's important to know that the, there's an upper Galilee that begins at Mount Hermon. The snow melts on Mount Hermon in the same way that it melts on the Sierra Nevada, melts on the Sierra Nevada and provides water that comes down through Dan, through Dan, very fertile, very fertile, and then it comes into the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus and the disciples are. 25 miles north, they follow the Jordan River up to Caesarea Philippi, and that's where the water just comes bubbling out of the bottom of the mountain. The disciples have been with Jesus now for two and a half years. He wants to be alone with them. Six months he'll die on the cross. Six months. He leads them to a deeper understanding of who he is. So 22 years old, 1978, Danny becomes a Christian. Every day, I'm learning more about who Jesus is. And I got news for you. In eternity, every moment, I will be learning more and more about who Jesus is. One of my former students, Bob, uh, didn't do school so well. So we ended up in Ivy High School in Fallbrook, California. And when I was a kid, we called it continuation school. They didn't call it that anymore. It was for the morning. He had to, all he had to do was get there in the morning. He did workbooks independently on his own, did workbooks. He didn't do very many workbooks. And I remember I'd go down and visit him and a couple of the kids from the youth group, and, and I'd show up at a, at, a, at a lunch table. I'd stop by a major market in town. For a dollar, you can get some day-old donuts, you know, a dozen. I bring them down there, check in at the office, sit down, and here they come out. And they're yucking it up and everything. And, you know, we give them some donuts and we talk. And I'll pick them up after school and, and uh, you know, do some discipleship or whatever. And, and, and so one day I pick them up after school and they were all chuckling. And uh, I said, what's so funny? He goes, well, you know, you come every week. And I go, yeah, yeah, you know, I try to when I can. He goes, they think you're our, prob- our probation officer. And we said, no, he's our youth pastor. He's not our probation officer. He's our youth pastor. But the, but the idea is this. Today, Bob has his PhD in theology. He's an expert in preaching. And, he, and he's a professor at a Christian university. And my only point of saying that is, 
is because it's something that we grow in, our knowledge of Jesus. Nobody arrives. Nobody, nobody's closer to Jesus than somebody else. It's very much a journey as we grow and learn about him. This, the church is different. It's different. We're in a spiritual family. Nobody's ahead of somebody else. We're all walking together. We're all learning together. And that's what is represented here as Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with the disciples. I want you to know that this moment is private, almost intimate. Luke tells us, now it, uh, Luke 9, 18, now it, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So Jesus is praying, the disciples is with him. Is with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Back to Mark, verse 28. This is speculation. But the crowds do have an, attitude, have an opinion. I don't know if you know this, but everybody has an opinion as to who Jesus is, Jesus' identity. So the disciples tell him, some say that you're John the Baptist. This was Herod Antipas's guess, best guess. But, but remember, Herod thought he was John the Baptist because Herod's conscience was guilty, because he was responsible for John the Baptist's death. And then it goes on to say that others say, another crowd favorite is that you're Elijah. And it's likely because Malachi 4, chapter 4, influenced this thinking. I'm going to read to you two verses from Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. This is the prophet speaking the word of the Lord. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Listen to what he will do. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What a beautiful, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. The transformation of the heart. The transformation of the heart so profound that it brings reconciliation into relationships that are splintered and broken. The prophet Elijah will come. Obviously, he's talking about John the Baptist. And he will preach a message of repentance. And that repentance will be so real and so genuine that you'll see estranged relationships changed and transformed because hearts are changed. Let me finish the verse. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. To say that Jesus was Elijah obviously was to confuse him with John the Baptist. John himself was a messenger who would precede Messiah. But again, this is the speculation. This is what the crowds, this is what the people are thinking and saying regarding Jesus. I was uh, thinking this last uh, Easter that we had a presentation here. I don't know if you came or not, but we had a presentation. I think it was Mitch Glazer with Chosen People. And, and, and so they were setting it up before the service. And I'm, I, I didn't have anything to do, so I was just getting in the way. They say, Danny, go get us some chairs. So I went and got some chairs. They were the wrong chairs. Danny, go get us some pillows. I went and got some pillows. They were the wrong pillows. And it was finally they quit giving me things to do, so I took the hint. But I noticed that at the table up here, they left one chair empty. Do you know who it was for? It's for Elijah. At the Seder dinner, at the Passover dinner, they're waiting for Elijah, again, based on the Scripture. 
As I already said, Elijah never died. He never perished. And we would see him again. We'll see him again on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some people say, you're the prophet Elijah. And it kind of makes sense. Didn't Jesus work miracles? Didn't Jesus speak the word of the Lord with authority? Remember how many times we've said he doesn't speak like the the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches with authority. And so they connected the dots. They were wrong, but they connected the dots and said he was Elijah. Look at verse 29. And he asked them, the disciples, obviously, again, privately, intimately, but who do you say that I am? I have a lot of feelings about Peter. I have a lot of appreciation for Peter. Partly because of what he's about to say here, but, but, but I, see, I see in Peter, I see in Peter a man looking for Messiah. A man, a man looking for a cause, for, for a purpose, for a mission, for something that's great, for something just like us. It, it's, like, it's like Peter's wired to do something bigger than be a fisherman, to do, to do something significant. It, it's not that Peter wants his name on anything. It's that Peter wants greatness for Christ, for Jesus. And I believe that Peter loves Jesus. I believe that sometimes his mouth gets him in trouble, but isn't that true about all of us? Isn't that human nature? And all the other disciples are playing Danny Ramos, looking at their sandals and not making eye contact, certainly not saying anything. Peter says, you are the Christ. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Earlier I said that when Peter replied that Jesus is the Christ, that he identified with him. When when we say that Jesus is God, we're saying that he is the authority in my life. And, and, And that whatever the scriptures tell me that Jesus tells me to do, whatever, however the Spirit influences me to live my life, I am going to obey him because I love him because he is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He is the God who is coming back one day. He's not going to be like the first time. They're not going to spit in his face. They're not going to pull out his beard. They're not going to nail him to the cross. They will be forced to fall on their face and worship him. Because Jesus is Messiah. He's Messiah. No whip is going to touch him. No one's going to slander him or misrepresent him. He is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And if he is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, then we will obey him because we love him. That, my friends, is truth. It doesn't matter what our culture and our society says. Truth, truth is that Jesus is Lord. And he's worthy to be praised and to be worshipped. And I'll be the first to tell you that I am a mixture. I am a mixture. I have a heart that wants to worship him, but I also have a heart that at times becomes passive. But when I hear Peter's words, it resonates, it reverberates down through the quarters of times, and it speaks to us tonight. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the chosen one. You are God in the flesh. You are worthy to be praised and to be worshipped and obeyed. (laughs) 
You do the same thing when you say or you think Jesus is Lord. You do exactly the same thing that Peter's doing here. When you worship, when you choose to say no to sin and yes to the Spirit, you are making a declaration. I I can't prove this, but I believe that when you follow God, that when you obey, even to your own suffering, even to your own loss, the angels stand back and are in awe of what God is doing in your life. Oh, my friends, this is so significant. This is so profound. When we do, this, we do the same, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus is our God, is our Lord. We do this when we baptize. Here in June, we'll be starting the summer baptisms. And if you're to be baptized or you're to go down, we're identifying with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. His death into the water, his burial in the water, and then his resurrection to newness of life. It's an external and outward expression of the faith that reverberates within you and that was in the, the apostle here. We see it too in communion. In the bread and the juice, remembering the cross, Christ's sacrifice. Verse 29, Jesus, Peter again says, you are the Christ. Now you may disagree with what I'm about to say, that's Okay. But I feel very, very comfortable thinking that Peter, as well as the other disciples, were growing in their understanding of Jesus. It would certainly make perfect sense after the Spirit comes and opens their minds in the pages of Scripture to see with more clarity, but they're in the process. And maybe some of you are here tonight, or some of you are watching online. You're in the process. You don't get it. You don't understand it. But you're in the process. You're on the journey. You're like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who said, did our hearts not burn within us as he opened the Old Testament passages as to as that the Messiah must come and must suffer and die and be raised again? Earlier in John 1, Andrew comes to his brother and he tells him this words. This is... Uh, John's Gospel, chapter, 40, uh, chapter 1, verse 42. Andrew, he first found, he first went to, the first thing that he did after meeting Jesus, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas simply, uh, it's Aramaic for rock. So by the time Caesarea Philippi rolls around all these, this, these years later, Peter has been prepared to receive God's revelation, to receive God's insight. And, and I would plead with you, continue on in your Christian walk. Understand that we won't understand everything, but take what you do understand and roll with it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, Simon, son of, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's words are not the result of human reason. It's supernatural revelation. Think that the apostle's mind was opened to, by God to see Jesus. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and I believe there's a reference here to creation. But Paul says, 
For God, who said, let light light shine out of darkness. Again, remember the opening pages of Genesis. Let light shine out of darkness. This God has shown in, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That you and I, my friends, have this revelation. We have this insight that the Spirit opens our minds and opens our hearts as we behold Jesus, as we behold him in the pages of Scripture, as we behold him in the lives of other believers, as other believers behold him in us. Our understanding unfolds and it grows. One more thing on this, and then we'll be done. In Matthew's account, Jesus references two things. First, the church, and then the gospel. So Matthew 16, this time, verse 18, the church. And I also say that you are Peter. So he's speaking directly to to, to Peter here. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I want you to hear a play on words here. The words Peter, a name, and rock. Again from verse 18. Peter in the Greek is Petros. It means a small stone, a stone. Rock is Petra, a massive stone, a massive shelf of stone, a ridge, if you will. I believe that Jesus is saying that that when he says my church would be built upon the truth revealed in Peter's confession, that Jesus is Messiah. Press pause. The church is built upon the confession that Jesus Christ is is Lord, that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's not built on a personality. It's not built on a gift. It's not built on culture. It's not built on any. I'm not denying these things. They exist. But we must build the church. We must build our ministries on Jesus. It's upon Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. Messiah, the Son of the living God. Again, clear reference to his deity. He goes on to say that the gates of Hades means that the ruling forces of evil will not and cannot overpower or defeat Jesus' church. In fact, as we've already said, Jesus has defeated evil. In 1 Corinthians, this should be on the screen, 1 Corinthians 3.11 Paul says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We can talk about building churches. There's seminary classes on it, Bible college classes on it. There's strategies, not in any way minimizing those things. The question tonight is, are you building your life on the rock? Are you building your life on the rock? Remember, I opened the story to tell you about a phone call I received because this young man was looking for his dad. You and I are looking for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, we have the gospel. And I will give, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, Jesus is speaking to the apostle Peter. However, church history reveals to us that the authority to preach the gospel is given to all believers. The apostles 
go by the wayside. They go by the scene. And yet the church preaches again and again and again Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church grows and it grows and it grows. And today it's growing as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and proclaimed. Think about it like this. The gospel is like a key that opens the door to salvation. If somebody rejects the message, then the door is closed. But if somebody receives the message, then the door is open. Remember, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. My friends, the gospel opens and closes the hearts of men and women. Our part is to tell others. In closing, really, this time I really am. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, this man, preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 Jews came to Messiah. In Acts chapter 8, Samaritans believed the gospel. Remember, the Samaritans, the hated ones, they believed the gospel and came to Messiah. Then in Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' house, Gentiles, Gentiles experienced faith in Christ in the outpouring of the Spirit in the Gentile church. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again, defeated his enemies so that, we, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe. Tonight, can you say that Jesus Christ is my Lord? Can you say that tonight? That's what you're looking for. That's, that's, that's the phone call that you are making each and every time you pursue this and pursue that and pursue that and like the woman at the well you're thirsty again you are looking for jesus messiah you will build your life on jesus messiah and you will not be disappointed i wanted to end with a quote by tim keller he passed on friday presbyterian minister from new york city when people ask me what i think about i have one word i just say brilliant a brilliant man. And if I'm sorry for a couple of things, I'm, I'm sorry for his family. He died of pancreatic cancer. It was a, a bit of a journey, but, but he knew he was going to heaven. So I'm sorry for the family. And I'm sorry for the sermons and the, that he will not preach and the books he will not write. But I'm thankful that he closed his eyes in this world to open them in the presence of the Lord. I close with this quote. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. Father, tonight, as we conclude with worship, the opportunity to receive communion, we, with those who have gone before us, our voices are raised tonight, and we say that Jesus is Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. He was obedient unto death. The Father has now has him at the right hand in glory, and that he's coming again, and that we are ready to receive our King, that we are praying for our King to come, that we're praying for his kingdom, for his rule, to come to this planet. But even, even as we wait, that rule is established in our hearts tonight because Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.